As a rogue, it's easy for me to spot the perfect mark. I get anything I want with a little distraction and patience. But as a role player, screw patience. I can't wait for my Dungeon Crate to arrive every month. Dungeon Crate brings me amazing RPG accessories like dice, minis, adventures, and lots more. And rumor has it around the guild, you also get a digital crate with even more secret extras. Dungeon Crate has what I want. Take what you deserve and become a member of Dungeon Crate today at DungeonCrate.com. And use the coupon code APPENDIXDC for $5 off any new subscription. I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club. My name is Jeff, and with me today is the Rat King himself, Hoy. Hello. Good, as always, to be here. And today we are joined by the co-host of the Any Award-winning Spellburn, uh, co-host of Sanctum Secorum, and an incredibly prolific editor at Goodman Games, Jen Brinkman. Good morning, guys. Hello, Jen. So glad to have you back. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, welcome back to the show. And the guest that we had scheduled wasn't able to do the episode after all. So, Jen, thank you so much for stepping in at the very last minute. We really you know, appreciate you it. You could have just stopped at thanks for being here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, and you're now in the, the – you and Daniel Bishop are the only people who've now had multiple appearances on our right. show. Like like the SNL five-timers Ooh. club. We have, to get you a, we have to get you a vest now. <laughs> Great. I could do this. <laughs> well, this is episode 60, and today we are discussing Fritz Leiber's The Swords of Lankmar. And I guess we can start by chatting about which edition of the book we're working with. I've got this pretty first edition 1968 paperback. Uh, it's got the Jeffrey Catherine Jones cover. We've got a sea serpent with some uh, dude with a blue helmet writing atop it. And uh, what are you working with, Jen? Um, you know, originally I had been working from the mass, the Fantasy Masterworks omnibus versions, but I recently picked up a copy of the same one. Ooh, and oh, nice. it hasn't even been cracked. It is ah. pristine. Oh, beautiful. So I, I've been enjoying the author's note on the, the frontis page, but... <laughs> right. So you've got highlighted in yours? <laughs> I will cut you. <laughs> <laughs> and Hoy? Yeah, Jeff, there's going to be a line at the next Gen Con of people just like wanting to like tear you apart for all you think, all the vandalism you've performed on your books. <laughs> hey, but for each book that I've purchased and vandalized, I have then gone out and spread the gospel there over go. the podcast airwaves. There you go. Spreading the message. There so I go. feel like it's a, it's a, it's a good sacrifice. Right, right. They uh, died for a good cause. There you go. Uh, <laughs> My last reread was the uh, um, uh, ebook version, which is a current Open Road Media. Uh, but today I am reading my White Wolf copy of Return to Lankmar with the Mike Mignola illustrations. And it also has that um, Fritz Lieber uh, introduction, like in the paperback that you have, Jen. Man, even the, the title lettering on that looks like a White Wolf book. Right. <laughs> yeah, good, good, good call. <laughs> and also the, a little funny anecdote on the side, you know, on our face, uh, not, not our Facebook, on our MeWe page, 
uh, to avoid bots, you have to answer a question uh, to join the group. And it's just one question. Who's your favorite Appendix N author? And uh, the day before yesterday, somebody wrote in and their answer was Fritz Lieberman. Right. Did you let him in? <laughs> you took a poll on that, right? Yeah. So uh, today Survey we're discussing Fritz Lieberman's Swords of Linkmar. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and a gentle listener, if that's you who did that, um, I, I, I make the joke with love. Um, and there's also a reason why I have not said who it was, because I, 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 I'm not that kind of a person. But Right, right. Well, welcome. Crap, it wasn't welcome. me, was it? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> welcome, mystery, mystery guests. We are glad to have you join the community. So normally we like to ask our guests how they got into gaming, how they got into the Appendix N. Jen, we've already asked you these things before. So mm -hmm. let's go ahead and ask you a different question. What kind of fantasy reading have you been doing lately? Uh, lately? Yeah. Um, Lately, my fantasy reading has been pretty much Vancean. Okay. For project, uh, a project coming up? For projects that have been announced, yes. Uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> so lots of rereading of Dying Earth? Lots of rereading and lots of audio reading. Oh, okay. Because I can play those over and over while I work on the mundane number stuff. And are you also reading non-Dying Earth fancy and stuff right now, too? Or are you focusing just on Dying Earth? Um, actually, if I'm doing any other reading, like, I don't get a whole lot of personal gen reading time when mm -hmm. I do. It's been uh, horror and suspense like mm. Christopher Bielman and Cherie Priest. Very cool. All right. So we're going to go ahead and dive on into the meat of this episode. But first, we've got our Hygaxian word of the day. Unguent. Unguent. Well, it says unguent here. I've, I've always pronounced it unguent. But um, anyways, I'll keep pronouncing it wrong because I feel more comfortable, more comfortable saying unguent. But unguent is found on page 34. Lukin's gaze moved past her to a scatter of big-eared silver unguent jars and several looped heavy silver chains on a shelf by the bed. And unguent, or unguent, is a soft, greasy, or viscous substance used as an ointment for lubrication. There you go. Yeah, so that is our Hygaxian word of the day. So now we can dive on into the library. Jen Brinkman, what did you think of the Swords of Lankmar? I thought it was a really good story. It being the longest one of the entire series, uh, there's a lot to it. It it was written in basically three acts almost. Yeah, each one of them could have stood alone on uh, because they've got the first one where... You have both Fawford and the Grey Mouse are together. And then in the subsequent acts, they're split up into their own narratives. So it it really read almost like three mini stories, like the other uh, compilations of short stories put together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think the first section probably was a short story, uh, originally a standalone short story that was reworked. The other parts you could clearly see were much more closely integrated. Oh, was that the one that was originally done as Scylla's Daughter? Yes. Which so. was in... Yeah. Fantasy mm -hmm. magazine. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of the the three sections, Fafford and Green Master together on the boat. Fafford off having his adventures, and uh, Mouser off having his adventures. Of those three sections, which one is your favorite of the three? That that's not a fair question, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, part three is or Act three would be the possibly the raciest of them. Mm -hmm. But it the whole story of the rats from Lankmar below kind of 
dwells in Act Three. So mm-hmm. that, that's the one that stuck with me more. How about you, Hoy? I, uh, I mean, the conclusion is phenomenal, but I like the sort of parallel action and sort of the ticking clock element of when they're separated and Fafford is trying to race back to Lankamar, not even really knowing why he's doing it. And so they just keep on cutting back to him. And each time you cut back to him, he's in a different part of Newan, getting closer, but encountering some kind of obstacle and it's sort of opening up the world to us. So I really like that element uh, that then sort of, uh, count, uh, counterpointed with sort of the almost chamber drama of basically the mouser spending most of his time in Glipcario's palace, you know, with a few side trips. Um, so I think that was very effective. I would agree. And although I wouldn't say this is my favorite Fafford and Greymaster story, because it's not, it's my favorite Fafford and Greymaster book. Which one is your favorite story? My favorite story is probably the one with Isaac of the Jug. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. Um, although... Bizar- Bazaar of the Bizarre is also a great one, <laughs> as is Link Time and Linkmar. Um, Link Times and Linkmar. There's so many great stories, but oftentimes I feel like the the collections that have some of my favorite stories also have some real kind of mediocre ones strewn in there as well. So this is the one that from first page to last page, I enjoyed reading the most. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. At no point did any of it feel like a chore. Right. That's high praise. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I mean, I think this one has a ton of like very interesting little asides that, you know, Libra is just so proficient at just like turn of phrase. I mean, the only person I think is, you know, at a higher level would probably be Vance, Jack Vance himself in terms of having a little turn of phrase that, you know, he's like, oh, wow, that's really cool. But there's tons of little turns of phrase in there, whether it's in dialogue or even just internal monologues. Um, and it, this allows it to breathe more than in a short story, in a way. Now, this 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 novel has a lot of characters in it. Was there one character that like really stuck out for you as one that you just really enjoyed spending time with, or didn't enjoy spending time with, but thought they were like really well written? Probably Demoiselle, uh, his vet. Okay, the doctoress, but with she's basically got that albino white skin the pure white hair and the rat's eyes Mm -hmm. and nobody can figure it out that she's part of the the hybrids (laughs) she's not my favorite character but she is definitely the one that stands out the most Mm -hmm. yeah i love that moment where she's telling mouser uh that in order to prove that he truly loves her, he has to be willing to murder anybody she says to kill uh, because if she truly loves him, she won't, uh, he won't doubt her word and won't choose anybody over her. And it's like, that, that's, that's maybe not the healthiest definition of love. <laughs> <laughs> you, you might want to go to a couple's counselor if... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I do like her. She's like firing on all cylinders. I mean, as do many of the women characters in this book, even though there's some sort of regressive, you know, you know, roles. Um, oh, like fricks. Yeah, like fricks. Um, but the, you can tell that there's a lot going on under the surface of all the characters, even Rethra, uh, the, the, you know, the, the bald shaven maid. She's got a rich internal life, uh, even though she's, you know, the most powerless character in the whole story. Um <laughs> So I, I thought that that was very interesting, that, that all the female characters are, are really well drawn. I mean, all the characters, as a matter of fact, but in particular, the female characters are very well drawn. Yeah, and I was really drawn to Kreekstra, the ghoul. Yeah. I just oh. think, I think yeah. she's such a cool, fun, and interesting character. I, I really like how, uh, first off, I think it's really funny the way that Fritz Leiber uh, wrote about their pairing. 
Um, where is, oh yeah, it's right here on page 115. I like when he says, it was a moderately strange sight, yet one to touch the hearts of imaginative lovers and enemies of racial discrimination in all the many universes. I, nice. I thought that was <laughs> very funny and a really kind of great way to address these two characters. And also, I think it's cool. Very that, forward thinking, really. Right, right, right. Sure, it's 1968. Right. So, heart of the civil rights movement, as this was going on. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And kind of a bold stance to take. And also kind of weirdly ahead of its time, too, because also we find that uh, Fafford is making a lot of uh, cultural assumptions about the ghouls and making lots of microaggressions. And <laughs> Creekshark Creep keeps correcting him, uh, like when he dares to think that uh, just because she likes to eat the flesh of other human beings does not mean that leaving a dead antelope for her is a good is a good prize. She's like, I don't just eat carrion. That's not who we are. And how dare you think that? And then there's the moment where um, he says, I've never had a lover as strange as you or something like that. And she's like, you just look at me as some weird object. Am I not a person to you? Uh, So yeah, she calls him out on a lot of his, uh, on a lot of his BS. Right, right. And I like that they draw the ghouls as having a culture specifically, right? And that them eating other human beings is actually a transcendent act, right? Because they consider other sort of non-transparent things sort of mud. And so they're eating and transforming them right, to, to eventually become transparent like the ghouls are, right? So it's almost like, you know, taking the Eucharist or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I guess one, th- I was also thinking, it got me thinking about ghouls and I'm like, I guess it would be easy to tell when a ghoul is pregnant. Oh. Maybe not see- you just know. see like another little skeleton in there. Uh, that's true. Once you develop another skeleton, that's true. <laughs> well, I mean, when do the bones actually develop their opacity? Mm, oh, I have no idea. Yeah. Good question. So, uh, yeah, there's some stories we don't know. Yeah. What One of the things I really enjoyed is that the rats kind of recur throughout all of the Lankmar tales. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, specifically in the first one, in El Met. The girls were found dead and partially eaten by rats. So now here True. they are presented with more rat problems. That the that yeah, it's not a new thing. That it's in an underlaying. He's he's laid the groundwork for it, you know, very early on, and then once it's we, a really subtle yeah. uh, foreshadowing too. Mm-hmm. And then when we do encounter the rats, they have a fully developed civilization and ethos and mores, uh, which are antithetical to ours, but also understandable. I think the other aspect that I really enjoyed was his Vin's potions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I really like the way that um, that Fritz Leiber describes the magic. And uh, I, I, he does a really good job of uh, saying to himself, if this were to really exist in the real world, how might it actually manifest itself? So the whole thing about like the pink pile of sludge that appears when mm-hmm. Mouser becomes small because he's like leaving beside, leaving, leaving behind all of this like matter. And then when he reforms and he's not in his pile of pink sludge, he ends up pulling, pulling all the mass from the uh, quite overweight 
um, other woman in the room. Uh, and because he doesn't have the materials to rebuild his clothes, it ends up like basically stealing her clothes. So now she's like naked and much thinner, which is of course, like on one hand, like very silly and a little misogynistic or maybe a lot misogynistic. Uh, but also it's just a really funny moment too. Well, I think that would have happened no matter who was in the room. Exactly. <laughs> right. right. So to, to get the extra little bit of comedy out of it is, is quite funny. And then, and then she's like, oh, yeah, not bad, right? You know? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I really like about Fritz Leiber's approach to sword and sorcery is there's, there, there's just so much humor in it. Yeah. And the fact that our duo aren't just loners really helps, too. They're, they're an established team. So they're okay with splitting the party every now and then. Right, right. And that they, they exist and believe in society, even though they think society is weird and corrupt sometimes. They're not like completely out and removed of it, like a, a Howard, Robert E. Howard protagonist is in a sense, right? They're like, they, they enjoy being in Lankmar. They enjoy going through all these different places and countries, you know, and, and like, you know, seeing the weird customs and values that they have there. I also like the way that Fritz Leiber brings humanity to even the most awful of characters. You know, here we've got the overlord who loves nothing more than having his uh, shaved and naked servants whipped before his eyes by the by Samanda, the big dominatrix. And there's that moment where like Samantha's where he's like, Samantha, do you remember when I was a child and you would let me throw kittens into the fire? Wasn't that so fun? And she's like, oh, sweet darling. I remember even further back than that when you were taking little animals and pulling their wings off. And But we had this like moment where like they're talking about truly dark, disgusting stuff. But like you also see that like they have genuine affection and respect for one another. So there actually is kind of a weird kind of core of goodness to them in their own very kind of sick and perverse way. You don't see that that done often or well. Well, I mean, it it depends. I often liken uh, Kugel to Fawford in that he's kind of the uh, the bastard version. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. And Kugel definitely, uh, they they give him feelings and emotions and yeah, they're, he's, he's more like Glipcario, I think. (laughs) 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 Well, I mean, one thing you do see is that, um, you know, both these characters are sort of, you know, rough hewn, but that the mouser without Fafford's sort of humor and sort of, uh, sort of calm headed influence is a much worse person when he's on his own. Right. He's definitely more amoral. He's more prone to, you know, like when he, you know, I mean, he's doing stuff that's practical, but, you know, like when he kills the Greek, the, the, the mouse counselor, you know, it basically does a serial killer thing. I know, you know, cuts them into little pieces and flushes them down the toilet, essentially. Right. And, you know, I mean, even Fafford has moments because like Fafford, you know, when he first rescues the, the ghoul, I mean, when he first kills the ghouls and then, you know, knocks out um, Kreeza, he's like, oh, maybe, I, oh, maybe is it, is it, or is it one of the twin girls? There's, I was going to maybe, you know, rape and kill her, but yeah, maybe I won't after all. Right. You know, <laughs> you know? so together they're better. Right. Yes. Together they're better. And, I mean, it's never shown that Fafford has ever actually done that, but it's in any of the books, but that's in his head. Right. It's whether it's culturally or a personal, a personal trait. Um, but when they're together, they sort of, even if it's just by friendly competition or not so friendly competition, they sort of moderate each other's worst impulses just by getting in each other's way sometimes. Now, Jen, what do you think? the romantic interests of Fafford and Grey Mouser in the Swords of Linkmar 
says about where they're at in their life now as opposed to what their romantic interests were when we first meet them as composed as compared to like um uh what is it ivrian and vala vlana vlana um they're definitely more into i I hate to say middle age but that kind of like the the middle of their adventuring career Mm -hmm. they've matured and yeah they they still think back to some of their perhaps darker times when you know fawford may have actually done that to somebody um and then probably got his butt kicked by the snow queen Mm -hmm. uh, but i think they've definitely matured in uh both their view of women and in their tastes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i think the women are much more challenging at this stage in their lives, they, they have stuff going on and they're constantly challenging Fafford and the Mouser in the way that Ivrian and Vlana weren't as much, you know, earlier. Right, because if I think if they were to encounter people who are just so, you know, two-dimensional as their original loves, they would, honestly, they would probably be bored by now. Mm-hmm. Unless Ivrian and Vlana had continued to grow with them. Now, how do you feel about how Shilba and Nimgobble were used in the story? Um... They're perfect plot devices, and they're everything I would want from a, a, a game, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's the god <laughs> influence. Uh, when you can't find a, a mortal human being to provide the influence to get somebody separated, insert god here. right. <laughs> And, and and they're but they have personality right it's not just like from from on high right they're a little bit cryptic they don't tell them like how the things are going to work out oh they're okay. actually i think uh i think shielba's personality is very i i am i am powerful you will listen to me i'm not going to tell you why but you just need to do this uh ningobble i i found myself liking him more even though he uses 18 words where one would suffice, you know? <laughs> or as Shilba says, uh, Ningabo of the billion words, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also loved that we are introduced to the palindrome Rats live on no evil star. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right, just keep saying that back. I don't know one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a good one. Although to this day, my still my still my favorite palindrome is go hang a salami. I'm a lasagna hog. <laughs> You're equally cool, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Liber clearly became a better writer of women as his career was progressing. And I think that was no small part due to his relationship with his wife, uh, Jonquil, who was a, in many ways a, a driving force in his career. Um, she was the one who had first written like sort of a letter of introduction to H.P. Lovecraft, who became one of Liber's uh, mentors. And I, I would not be surprised if she was the one that was sending a lot of the query letters to the various, you know, uh, magazines and stuff like that that Liber got published in later. Um, another very important person, woman in, in Liber's life was Celia Goldsmith, who basically brought him out of semi-retirement to keep on writing the Fafford and Grey Master stories in the late 50s because he'd basically stopped writing the stories for about 15 years. Um, so, again, even though there's sort of what we would now consider regressive attitudes in some of the stories, I think that the women in the stories and the women in his life played a very important part in his work. Anyway, yeah, I, I think of of the majority of the Appendix N authors, I think Liber's probably grown to be more of the uh, respective type. 
in his later works, there's fewer utterances of, oh, the women are lesser. And they're constantly challenging Fat from the Mouse. You know, whether they're right or not, they're constantly challenging them and keeping them on their toes. Yeah, I, I would agree with, with all of that as well. Is there anything about the story that you guys found didn't quite work? Hmm. Any nitpicks? Um, you know, there's the the weird uh, German time traveling uh, zookeeper. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's hilarious, but you know, he doesn't. It's like it's and it's nice to bring science fiction into the fantasy, but it's like he appears out of nowhere. Um, he does some hilarious stuff. You know, solves that section of the story and then disappears again. But I'm not sure if that was like an in joke that. Labor was pursuing or what what that meant you know really or maybe a repetition of hey guys we told you there were these world bubbles going right, on right right yeah jen how did you feel about the that that portion did you feel like that was uh successfully implemented or do you agree with hoy that it was a bit awkward um at the time i was like what and then i re-listened to it okay that happened you know <laughs> not not a big deal and they're very good at like rolling with the with with the punches, you know. It's like also at the very end when um, when who is it? Um, Fricks. Um, when when Fricks ends up uh, uh, fulfilling her her duties of uh, saving her life three times, and then turns into like a bolt of lightning and shoots into the air or whatever. They're just like, all right, <laughs> that was crazy. I'm just like you have the powers of the the gods of Lankmar, and then there's Fawford climbing the temple of the gods of Lankmar. Right. And, it, you know, the supers, I shouldn't say super, superstitions, but the supernatural powers are, you know, ever-present, hearkening back to Shilba and Ningobble. Right, right. So why should that be any different? Right, right. And it is funny, though, that even within that context, that there are certain things that Fafford and the mouse would consider superstition. <laughs> and so yeah. like, you know, oh, that's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not real. <laughs> and also that like some, it, it, it's unpredictable what is going to work and who's going to have access to these things. You know, like clearly we're introduced because of our time traveling uh, snake writer that the multiverse is real. You can travel from world to world. And then we have the moment where, Glip Curio is talking about how, you know, don't he, he doesn't need to worry because he's got this escape, this escape hatch. You know, if he has to, he can just leave this world and go to another world where he'll probably <laughs> become a noble or something there, too. Right. He'll be fine. And um, do, do one of you want to explain how that actually worked out for him? Uh, you know, so he climbs into his either rocket ship or submarine and launches down this bronze chute and then gets into the uh, Lankmar Deep, which is the, sort of like the Mariana Trench right outside Lankmar Harbor and just descends down and is just crushed in this lead coffin. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> but what's also great though is uh, uh, Fritz Lieber's Fritz Leiber is also like, well, and you know, we, he could have, we, we don't actually know what happens to you right, basically right. after you die. So maybe he did go somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah, that's great. It's, 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 you know, everybody gets what they deserve at some point in a library story, which is pretty, pretty hilarious. So. <laughs> Now, I've not read any other Fritz Leiber yet, and I'm excited to start exploring more of his work really? soon. Um, so and you've I'm, only done two books? What's that? How many of the... Oh, you mean besides Lankmar? Yes, I'm sorry. I've no. not read any Fritz Leiber outside of Fafford and Grey Mouser yet. Gotcha. Um, so I'm curious... But I'm, both of you have, right? Uh, just a little bit. Some of his short stories, yeah. Yeah, same. Yeah. 
Okay, how do you guys feel about how Fafford and Grey Mouser sit within the overall vision of his work? Um, I think there's more humor in definitely Faf- Fafford and Grey Mouser stories than the rest of his stuff. Um, okay. There is definitely a strain of cynicism, and, and um, again, he was a he was a you know heavily influenced by Lovecraft and was directly in communication with Lovecraft. So there's a, a the darkness that is sort of around the edges in the Lankmar stories is can be front and center in some of his other stories. Uh, That's a really good way to put it. Um, and I think he almost takes himself a little bit more seriously with some of the, like the sci-fi. Mm-hmm. It reads a little bit more like Lester Del Rey's stuff where it, everything is factual and this is happening, even if it's absolutely dismal. Um, I also know that there is a theme of the battle of the sexes that plays out in some of his other stuff that we haven't read yet. Like, um, uh, whatever the which one is, um, but it's not yeah, yeah, that one, <laughs> right? And then um, you know, Our Lady of Darkness, the Conjure Wife, right? Conjure Wife, right, right. Yes. Um, so the, and some of the later ones that is so the, he does play with this theme of the battle of the sexes. Um, and again, I haven't read those, so I don't know exactly how dark they, you know, what kind of dark tunnel they go down to. Whether there's sort of an, an equal interplay that the way that there is in these Mar stories, but I do know that was a theme. I also know that he at various points in his life did struggle with alcoholism um, and writer's block, even though he had an enormous body of work. And that also when his wife passed away, you know, quite young, I guess it was in the late sixties, you know, that put him in a tailspin for a while also. So um, I would not be surprised to see any of that stuff reflected in his later fiction. So now transitioning this conversation over to the gaming side more, uh, Jen, I know we've discussed Fafford and Grey Mouser and its influence on D&D before, but is there anything from this book specifically that you found was very Dungeons and Dragons and very like, oh, I can see this is where they got that from? Not so much on on the D&D side, but you know, my experience lies with Dungeon Crawl Classics, of course. Mm-hmm. Of course. And the module that is included with the box set heavily revolves around his Vin's potions. Mm-hmm. No small crimes in Lankmar, right? Correct. Yes. Down to the pools. Yeah, the pool of goo. In, in which you will stand and let your matter collect. <laughs> <laughs> and shortly before this, we had our patron book club and Andy Action was there. And Andy reminded me that apparently I was, um, I, I sat in on him running that game, but apparently it was after hours and I was quite drunk and I wasn't around for very long. Uh, <laughs> but- Shame on you. <laughs> You're lost, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so I would love to play that adventure um, a time that I will remember. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and I think in even playing a lot of AD&D, there's a lot of influence throughout many, many modules where a higher power or a more powerful being, if you will, is sent out as the plot device. Mm-hmm. So here's your quest. Go do it. Usually they don't recommend splitting the party for that one, but... <laughs> One thing I really liked about this story that felt very D&D or fantasy role-playing to me is there's that there's that stereotype of like the first level adventure, they get stuck with the adventure of like, you're going to go deal with the giant rats in the basement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to clear out the dire rats from the basement of the tavern or whatever. Right. This is kind <laughs> of, yeah, this is kind of that adventure like on acid and ratcheted up to 11. <laughs> Well, yeah, because they're mid-level adventures now. They're probably level 10 to 12 in AD&D. Right. Mm-hmm. Easily fourth or fifth in DCC. Mm-hmm. 
right? This would be their sort of prime. I, I, and I, I noticed in the box set that they actually had them at the beginning of their careers, their prime and sort of when they're on, uh, you know, uh, in the, the ice, the ice aisle. So this the, the rhyme aisles. Rhyme aisles, yeah. So I think it's a great reminder that not only can you have demons and dragons and interplanal travel at zero and first level, but you can also have weird encounters with rats be the main enemy for mid to high level play. Oh, yeah. Especially if you start out with a little taste of it in that first level mm-hmm. or, or even in your funnel, if you will, mm-hmm. and then return to it years later. Oh, crap. These things again. Right, right. <laughs> oh, but this is their origin story. Right. So now you're getting to meet the boss right. of those dire rats. Right, right. And then actually having a, you know, a duel where, where the mouser is actually pushed to his limits, right, by this, you know, uh, rat swordsman mm-hmm. um, is really fascinating. And then and then Fafford himself being sort of pushed to his limits by the, the three or it's a seven, originally seven Ilfamari bandits. You know, who then almost take on a supernatural aspect as they're pursuing him, you know, throughout the rest of Lankmar, try, you know, as he's trying to get back to the city. Now, what do you want to bet those bandits were influenced by Shilba or somebody akin to that as well? Right. It's sort of like a little, yeah, a little light under his under his butt to get him back to the city on time. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, yeah, there's a lot of times where they're being manipulated, right? That the, um, that the rats, I think... Um, where they, they deliberately let them escape at one point to sort of just bring back the tales of, um, you know, I'm trying to remember if that was quite right. But anyway, they're being, both Favre and the Mouse are being manipulated by various forces at large at all times, it seems to me. Yes, one might even say cat and mouse. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Fafford's even like, okay, so I'm probably under a geese right now, whatever, it's fine. I'll get there and do what I need to do. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to play the geese game with you again, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> As long as you're not guessing it, I'm fine. Yeah. We're good. We're good. Yeah, yes. um, and one thing, I think the last time we had talked, um, you know, the box set had, the DCC Langmar box set hadn't been released yet. So you yeah. were not as able to talk much about what was going on behind the scenes, sort of development of this. Um, is there anything interesting that you, you know, for a, a part of that process that you can tell us about now that, uh, now that the box set is in the wild? <laughs> of the process? Yeah. Um, man. The one thing I will publicly say on behalf of the whole team and Michael Curtis, nothing like putting five years of work into it, only to have a shipping company screw uh, things up. Yeah. But overall, I the project was amazing to work on. Everybody was super supportive of each other. And uh, it's really kind of strengthened the bond between that team, which is always good for morale, right? Mm-hmm. Uh as far as, I mean, I feel like I learned more about Lankmar reading and rereading the material in this box than I did through four or five rereadings of the material provided in these books by Liber. Mainly, I, I, I think a, a good port of, excuse me, I think a good portion of that is because, of course, the stretch goals on the Kickstarter, that last one was to send the author to the University of Houston, where the Fritz Leiber's paper reside. And there were notes in there that were dug up that we were allowed to use for game content that no other gaming company has. So that's why uh, DCC Lankmar module number eight is all about the land of the eight cities. Mm -hmm. 
the cultures, the people, the background of the area. And this is stuff that nobody else has put out. So that, that, that bit of sneak peek stuff was just amazing. Some of the original map snippets. Yeah. I was just really struck just from the mechanical point of view about the additions that were added to DCC that didn't, that were so perfectly made it fit Blankmar, but without underlying, like sort of negating anything that was already in DCC other than leaving out the clerics, you know, Um, the healing, the fleeting luck, all those things like that. So perfectly captured the Blankmar feeling. Well, and, and there's no funnel. Right. And a handful of people have said, what do you mean no funnel? Because if you look at Fawford and the Grey Mouser, when you first meet them, they're not zero-level characters. Right. They're already established adventurers. Mm-hmm. So you start out at level one, and instead of the occupations, you get venisons and dooms that are reflective of your place of origin, mm-hmm. and you go. Right. There's this different set of languages, which is... Really, really helpful, especially for your judge if they want to throw in some foreign element. Oh, hey, this is the language they speak. Right. And all of the rich uh, exploration into that world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's definitely that, that depth of feeling that you are in that world. It's not, it's not like, let's play uh, DC. Let's not play, let's not, it's not, you don't feel like, let's play Lankmar using AD&D. Let's play Lankmar using RuneQuest. This is, we're playing Lankmar. Right. Well, and that is an option. Yeah. I mean, it, you have the option of taking it in the literary Lankmar direction, mm-hmm. which means no clerics. Right. Yeah. But you could also have an entire established fantasy party from any game or elements and have them arrive via one of the other world bubbles. Mm-hmm. Have them visit the city for a while. Right, right. Um, just as as we they... saw with the guy with the helmet. Right. <laughs> Right, and then when exactly. uh, when they had ended up in our real world, you know, in our sort of early, sort of late antiquity, I think, like, uh, which story was that? That was when they were in, like, Tyre. Adip's Gambit. Adip's Gambit, right. I think which that, is the, my least favorite of all of the Fafford and Greymaster stories I've read to date. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little sort of grindy, this one. It's, it's so long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it's long, and, like, it's not, it, it, it it was the one that felt the most like a chore of all the ones that I've read so far. Oh, really? I, I would have said the Lords of Cormall for me. Hmm. I enjoyed that one. I, I've heard people say that too. But uh, so Jen, I apologize if I asked you this last time, but then again, that was a little more than was about two years ago that we had our last interview with Aww. you. about this. It was, I just checked. It was December wow. of 2017. Wow. Holy cow. Yeah. Okay then. <laughs> um, but how familiar are you with uh, the AD&D Linkmar? Uh, honestly, I distanced myself from that. The second edition set. Yeah. Um, we actually just brought it into the house recently because our FLGS owner came across a copy and said, you guys need this. Uh, but I've only flipped through it a little bit enough okay. to know that, you know, I could maybe mine some things out of here because they have specific character names in case I may have a, a brain fart or something. But um, I... I'll probably never use it for game content. Fair, I'm fair. a little dated. <laughs> and, and I will say, because of your your uh, German friend there, Hoy, uh, it hasn't, for whatever reason, this release hasn't been officially announced yet. 
but it was available on the table for sale at Gamehole Con. So I will tell you that Unholy Nights in Lankmar, mm-hmm. you are going to laugh your butt off. Okay. <laughs> I love it. It may or may not be this year's holiday release, but it's DCC Lankmar number 10. Nice. Um, were you also familiar with it from uh, Lankmar stuff in uh, Deities and Demigods back in the day? Again, I know you're probably distancing it so that you could approach this project fresh and not have any preconceptions from the gaming point of view. I actually haven't run AD&D, mm-hmm. so I've not had a whole lot of reason or opportunity to look at Deities and Demigods. Mm-hmm. And... Bob, the hubby, just got his copy back a couple of years ago, and it's kind of over on his table, so I don't, I don't bother with it. Yeah. He'll throw it at us when we need it. <laughs> so now, as we've discussed, you know the the Lankmar Fafford and Graymaster stories do tend to be pretty body. Uh, there's lots of sexuality and lots of perversion and lots of. Uh, not in all the stories. <laughs> not, not, okay, not in all, but like it's definitely a thing that exists in in, in his world. But uh, Goodman Games tends to try to be very, very family friendly and put mm-hmm. out products that are going to be appropriate for anybody at any age. So I'm curious, do you feel like Goodman Games had to um, be kind of careful in how they approach that material? Or do you feel like it's still just as easy to throw into your game, even though it might not be explicitly laid out? Or do you feel like that kind of stuff just shouldn't be put into your game at all? It totally depends on what kind of table you have. Mm-hmm. I, I probably wouldn't do it at a convention Yeah, um, with, with any of that. Although there have been seduction attempts in the city of Lankmar at my table of the city watch. Um <laughs> <laughs> Okay, he rolled an at 20. All right, right. let's do this. Uh, I mean, as long as everybody's on board, but anything lascivious or lewd or that for con play, that's usually off the table. Sure. Um, And I I maybe mean like something as simple as like how Glipcario's slaves are all completely naked and shaved from head to toe. I, I, I might be wrong, but I really doubt Joseph Goodman would allow something like that to end up in a Goodman Games product, for example. He probably wouldn't let Doug do the art. (laughs) (laughs) But to be perfectly blunt, you can have an absolutely innocent family-friendly game, and you can have that one player who makes it uncomfortable for everybody. Sure, You can have that one player that says, yeah, but in the books, blah, blah, blah. Right, right. So it's kind of a, if it's something that your players are into and want to do, make it your own game. Right. Now, I haven't read the box set from cover to cover because I tend to dive in and out as I need to. But it's all right, man, I got you covered. There. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... yeah, Jen, have you read it all the way through? <laughs> uh, oh God, uh, the, the stack! I I can't even fit everything in a two ring binder right. for all of the multiple copies I had to print out to preview. Right. Right. Um, but my point being that um, I feel like. None of that stuff, Jeff, that you're talking about, the body stuff, is in any real way mechanical. So it's pretty easy to bring it's it back. Yeah, it's pretty easy to bring it back into your game as long as you read the stories. And one thing that is very explicit in the box set is pointing you to the stories and saying, here, mm-hmm. read the stories. And we've highlighted the ones that we think are really core to understanding, uh, you know, uh, Lankmar, but they're all great. So here they go. Um, right. Like, even on the, the write-up for his vet. And nowhere in it does it say the word seductress, which I found to be just a delightful change because instead, hey, we're going to use the English language 
and and delve into her abilities and her personality more than just labeling her with one word. Mm-hmm. So that's on me. <laughs> that label, that that's mine. Right. And in fact, because as we say, she's that's not all she is. That's a tool that she uses. But you know, once she's right. once she's you know. Um, once she's confronted by her father and the other rat counselors, you know, or just before that, she's like, no, I, you know, today, you know, the overlord of Lankmar, tomorrow, the imperatrix of multiple universes with you at my side. Right. So this is, this, that's what she is. That seductress is just, you know, a, a an arrow in her quiver. For she has one. lofty aspirations. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah so does that answer your question, Jeff? Sure. Make it your own game. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. One thing that kind of cracked me up, which is I feel kind of, um, oh, I don't know. One thing I enjoyed, though, was that at one point they're referred to as rogues. And I was like, oh, that's very 5e of this story. <laughs> they weren't, there's one point where they're called rogues instead of thieves. Hmm. Well, I mean, it, it's just a thesaurus thing right. so oh of course of course it, it just kind of cracked me up I'm though because, by your statement because <laughs> i feel like the the uh thief is like the kind of the osr way of describing it and rogue is very like a very like a modern D way of describing it so i don't know it's, mm. it's it's silly and i don't i'm not actually claiming it means anything it just kind of tickled me when i saw them described that way right, right. no no i i have seen people say oh well this writing here in a dcc product it says rogue and it should say thief right and we're like we were talking about the general sense right okay right like all the (laughs) exactly like pretty much every dcc character is a rogue right but some of them are thieves (laughs) magical item they refer to that person as the thief right well no it's the offender i guess because it could have been the wizard who took the not not the thief man the english language is so cumbersome right (laughs) just like how in appendix n the same wizard might be referred to as a wizard a magician a necromancer a warlock all of those things are describing the same person right right as opposed to later editions of DD. yeah yeah we're saying oh he's not a wizard he's a sorcerer right (laughs) (sighs) okay (laughs) (laughs) and i sort of get psychologically why they sort of renamed them because once you're like, oh, I'm a thief. I steal stuff. So then there's that always that problem with like, you know, the thief pick, pickpocketing the paladin in the party or doing something stupid like that instead of like exactly. Um, but on the other hand, I do also get like, well, again, the rogue. The rogue doesn't really say that. Just says something about their personality. It doesn't really say anything about their role within the party. Um, so I think that that having a you know, I like having the thief as a class. Yeah, I'm with you. It seems like if you were to use a word that actually kind of describes what they really do, I almost think like scout is almost better for the way that character class is used in modern D D. Right, because rogue, I mean, if if you say something is roguish, that that's almost just like uh going back to a little bit lewd. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right. I mean I guess some people who play the thief is sort of the face character, like in, you know, um uh, you know, the, the, the sly, quick-talking character. Um, but a lot of times people use the bard for that role, the thief. Or the paladin. Yeah. yeah Mr. Charisma. Right, yeah. right. For, yeah, for that, there's more like, oh, come on. And then, yes, the sort of more like quick-talk, fast-talk would be the bard. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. We don't send our thief out first, ever. That That's how we end up running for our lives again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess in DCC it's a little bit more flexible because they have the luck, so they can get, they can get, they can get back. But like a, a D&D thief is 
really fragile. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, very true. So now, Jen, do you see Shilba and Nimgobble as human wizards who have suffered lots of corruption, or are they alien entities? Oh man. Or supernatural, or personally, I never put a whole lot of thought into it. Um, yeah, skip it. I, I mean, somewhere between supernatural and yeah, all of the above, perhaps. Sure. So you file them in the the category of do we really need to have the answer to that? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, the the winged Taya, you you know that that was a transformation, but Shilba Ningop. Shilba maybe, maybe started as a caster, Ningobble, who the hell knows? I mean, I think that the, um, what's good is that they have distinct personalities that, and that they have sort of, at times, they're even sort of petty. And so they have sort of what appear to be human motivations, but, but to try actually sort of like put them in a box, I think is not that effective, right? Because they're sort of more plot devices than, um, I mean, yeah, plot devices. You wouldn't never want to play Ningobble or Shilba or completely delineate their powers, Um because then that doesn't give you the ability to use them as you know, quest right. givers and stuff like that. Right. And and especially because in DCC Lankmar, wizards aren't the only ones who can have patrons anymore. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Anybody, any of the PCs can have them as a patron. And then there's a new mechanic called the patron die that works with it. So you need that to stay as an NPC on the other side of the screen. Although I think, uh, you know, people were kind of a little vague on that in DCC that I guess you could technically cast Patron Bond on another character so that they could yes. have the Patron and they just would, you know, they just would only have the Patron power. They wouldn't be a wizard, but they would potentially get a Patron spell or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. There's actually a, one module comes to mind where there's an artifact that if touched, a roll is made on that table to give the person a patron. Right. So I'm really constantly amazed when going back into that game, the amount of forethought in terms of pulling all this different elements from Appendix N and yet somehow having them work together because, you know, they're all individual creations of 30 plus authors, right? So how to make it all work work in a, in a, in a cohesive game system is to me still really amazing. Which is probably one reason the Lankmar project was a little bit, little scotch bit uh, more cohesive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense because it's it's drawing on one one source rather than forty. And we didn't have twenty people in the mix for the writing pool, mm-hmm. so it was easier to adhere to one voice. So the gods of Lankmar are mm-hmm. possibly gods, possibly just mummies, um, and it looked in the story as though the rats may have actually been close to possibly have defeating them had not Fafford and Grey Mouser shown up when they had. Do you think that the gods of Lankmar are mummies that could just be killed? Or do you think that they truly are like semi-indestructible entities? I think they're more along the lines of the imagery you got when Fawford went below Thieves' House. Mm-hmm. Right. And and those also came across as mummies or, you know, right. ethereal voices and eyes in the dark. Right. Um, I don't think that that was... Let me rephrase that. I don't believe that the number of quote-unquote mummies, to use Jeff's word, were the sole number occupying the place. I don't believe that was the only power in residence. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I think it may have been another one of the 
uh, devices used to push Fawford on his way and make him hurry. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Well, Jen, thank you so much for, again, sharing with us more of your Lankmar wisdom. Was there anything from the story that you really wanted to chat about that we just didn't get a chance to get to? Um, I think we pretty much covered all of it. Yeah. Great. So is there any project you're working on or anything that you would like our listeners to be aware of? Um, Keep your eyes open for the new Lankmar modules and... That means those of you who backed the Kickstarter, even with the print pack, now have two modules to catch up on. Mm. Perfect. And if you're looking for more discussion about Dungeon Crawl Classics, Jen and I are also on a podcast called Spellburn. And if you're looking for a specifically Dungeon Crawl Classics take on the Appendix N, you can listen to another podcast she's on called Sanctum Secorum. And we're expected to come back out of hiatus next year. Nice. Woohoo! What can I say? The dying earth has pretty much eaten all of our brains. <laughs> <laughs> Very fair. But there's 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 quite a back catalog to work through. Much appreciated. Indeed. Thanks so, for having me, guys. Absolutely. So great to have you and, back. Yeah. And Jen, if people want to find you on social media, where can they find you and your various projects? Pretty much um, at Facebook, there's a really sizable DCC group there, uh, DCC RPG Rocks, and I am DCC Acolyte on Twitter. Perfect. All right, Hoy, and how can people find us? If you want to email us, we're at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're on uh, Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. We're also on MeWe and Facebook. Just look us up. And um, do uh, rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice if you get the chance. It helps people find us. And Jeff, we have a Patreon. We do. And before this episode, we had a patron book club where we chatted with Gabriel Meister, Andy Action, and Adam Styers, And that was a whole lot of fun. Also, I want to take a moment to apologize to Noah Green. Noah Green had also RSVP'd for that book club, but I messed up and I didn't send him the invitation. So he was not actually a part of it. So Noah, I'm very sorry. Um, I hope you accept my apology. But We can't leave you anywhere, Jeff. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry, Noah. Um, but yes, so we have a Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash appendix and book club, that's a great place where you can go and show your support for our show. If you like us, please consider throwing some money our way. And we would like to send a um, couple shout outs to some of our uh, some of our patrons. We'd like to thank Stanley Raduski, Robbie Fioto, Andy Action, Eric Johnson, Kurt Rosener, Peter Martino, Fletcher A. Vredenberg, Vasily Kalaman, and Ethan Schoonover. Thank you so much for your continued support. Love you guys. And yeah. Absolutely. Yes. And our next two episodes, episode 61, is going to be on A. Merritt's Dwellers in the Mirage. And episode mm-hmm. 62 will be on Gardner F. Fox's Kothar and the Demon Queen. Looking forward nice to it. Nice choices. <laughs> it's going to be good stuff. So, Jen, thank you again so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much again. Thank you, guys. All right. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>